Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, so good morning again. Great to see all of you here. It's good to see this room start to fill up a little bit. It seems like we're getting a few more people every week, which is nice. It feels nice and full. There's a good energy in here. So thank you for being here and being a part of worship with us in person this morning. Thank you for joining us online as well as you're at home worshiping with us. We are together in this, whether we are in person or whether we are online, we are worshiping together this morning. So thank you all for joining us. It's good to be here. Good to be here. Um, this morning, we are going to continue our series, uh, week three. We're now in week three of our series called A Perfect Union. Which where we have been looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7 as we see them presented in Matthew's Gospel. And if you've been with us through the first two weeks, you know that we've been approaching this uh, series from the standpoint of looking at how Jesus' words in this critical, most well-known sermon in history have to direct us and have to guide us in the world that we're facing right now. As we said a little earlier, 2020 has been a year that's unlike any other. It's been tumultuous in a lot of ways. And in particular, as we face the last few months of this year, we are facing uh, a contentious, what is already shaping up to be a very contentious political season, which has a lot to do with how we are engaging the world around us as Christians in America in 2020. Because that's ultimately what we're talking about, right? We take this timeless message of the the Bible, and we try to understand what it means to be Christians in our current setting. That's been the, the testimony of the church throughout history. What does it mean for us to be Christians in this year, in this setting, for this generation that God has called us to? And this morning we're going to be talking about this perfect calling that God has called us to through the kingdom of God. And as we've been talking about this, I think when, we, when, when I first kicked this off and said, okay, we're going to look at this from the standpoint of a political perspective in a lot of ways, uh, I know that that raised at least some eyebrows. I can be actually fairly confident that it probably caused some eyes to roll as well. Uh, because maybe, and that, which is fine, because maybe you're at a place right now where you're just tired of hearing about politics. Maybe you're at a place right now where like, you care a lot about politics, and so some of the things that I've said over the first couple of weeks you don't necessarily agree with, so that's caused you to roll your eyes in some ways. But at the same time, as I started into that first week, um, I was, I, I was t- as, as I told you, I was as honest as I could possibly be that first week about, I don't, <laughs> I feel like this is the right thing to do, but at the same time, I have a lot of anxiety about getting into this sermon series and planning it through. Because I know that as soon as I start talking about some of these things, there is this kind of feeling of tension in the room from time to time. I feel like at certain times already through the first couple of weeks, I could almost feel the tension was so palpable that I could almost feel it like through the camera to people at home. Like that's how it felt sometimes. And look, if I can confess uh, a little bit to you, I... I wasn't completely sure about going through a series like this at the beginning. In fact, I much more wanted to just go through like the book of Philippians because that's Paul's letter of joy and I just wanted to be kind of joyful during this time. It felt like if we could just do that and just kind of ignore everything else that's going on outside, then maybe that'll help us have a better bent to everything. But I, I came to the conclusion really that in the end, that what we need to be about if we're going to engage our world is understanding what it means to be people who are called by Jesus to be involved in the world around us. That we have a world outside whom Jesus loves and whom Jesus wants to see come to salvation, and we've been called as the church to be the people who live out that gospel good news in the world. And in order to do that, we have to be involved and we have to be engaged. And so, you know, as a pastor, when you pick a sermon series, it's not like God hands you a stone tablet and says, like, this is what you're going to preach on next. I mean, you basically have to pray through and think through and do all kinds of things like research and you talk to other people in the church, at least that's my process, and then you come to a conclusion based on your pastoral sensibilities, like what's the best way for us to plan a series as we go through that's the most relevant and it's going to hit where we need to be and that we feel like where God is leading us and all the rest. And so you go through a book of the Bible that you feel like either speaks to that or you go through a topical series, and this is kind of where we've landed. And look, I have to say this, one of the main reasons why I even wanted to do this series It's not because I wanted to be controversial, not because I wanted to, you know, uh, stoke some kind of interest in our sermon series and get more people to watch online. It's not so that, you know, I could get on my soapbox and be like Frank Costanza at Festivus and the airing of grievances. It's a Seinfeld reference. Look it up on YouTube after you'll laugh. You'll laugh really hard, right? Frank Costanza airing of grievances. It's not because I wanted to be Frank Costanza and just air my grievance. It is really because I have been alarmed at how I feel like partisan media, partisan politics, the world around us are trying to make disciples of political ideologies rather than allowing us to be disciples of Jesus. And I feel like 
at the same time, we have to be people in the church. If we're going to be looking at this from that standpoint, we have to be people in the church that look like Jesus and follow Jesus with what we do. And look, I've been alarmed at how many political ideologies, I think, are informing so much of what Christians think and do right now. And as those ideologies conflict with Scripture or they don't align completely with Scripture, I've also been concerned about the fact that I've seen many American Christians grow comfortable with force-fitting the gospel into unnatural political ideologies and narratives. And it's affecting our hearts, it's making us more angry, it's making us more fearful, and it's making us more confused. And I think not only is it affecting our hearts as individuals, not only is it affecting our, our souls personally, but I think it affects also our witness, our mission, and the reason that we exist here as a church on this earth, which is, which is not to promote a political party, but to promote the king and his kingdom, who is Jesus. So this morning, this is where we're going. We're going to be talking about the mission of Jesus and how when Jesus talks about what it means for us to be salt and light from the Sermon on the Mount, what it looks like for us to be Christians on mission. You know, this past week, um, uh, there was a, uh, a post on Facebook from Tim Keller. Uh, if you don't know who Tim Keller is, he's a pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian, uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. He's written several books. He's a guy that's been very influential on in my life. He's, he's kind of a mentor without even knowing me. He doesn't know me at all, but like, like a lot of pastors, we read his books, and we follow him on Facebook and these kinds of things. And so I follow him on Facebook, and I saw this post uh, this, this week, and I don't know that that picture came out like it should, but I'll read it for you and what it says. He, he, he put this post out, and he was talking about the political climate really in America right now, which is hitting us all. But he said this, the demonization and dehumanization of the other side must stop. And in that, he's talking about the other side of the political spectrum, whatever side you fall on. And when professing Christians do it, it's triply wrong. So I read this, and I thought to myself, well, that's a pretty reasonable quote. I mean, you know, it's, it's something that we see, I think, a lot in Scripture. I mean, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say as Christians, we shouldn't be demonizing and dehumanizing people who are created in the image of God, no matter what they believe politically and no matter what we believe politically. But I was shocked to see, and at this point, there's over 1,700 comments to this post, if you go find it online on Facebook. And I wouldn't suggest you read through too many of them, because it'll probably be a little bit depressing and heartbreaking, at least it was for me. As I began to read this, I thought to myself, okay, there were a lot of positives, and thank you for the reminder, uh, Pastor Keller and all the rest, but there were so many professing Christians who got on there just to bash this comment in particular. And I didn't understand it. I thought to myself, like, dehumanizing and demonizing is something that we should not be doing as Christians, and yet we found a way within these posts to attack a man who just says, hey guys, we shouldn't be doing this. And it's not who we should be as Christians. And if you read through that, you'll see everything from people telling Tim Keller, look, you need to pick a political side. Stop being on the fence. Pick one side or the other. We're at war right now. To calling Tim Keller a woke pastor, which is a dismissive, derogatory term, of course, in that context. And then getting to a place where they actually are challenging his authority to teach the gospel and saying that he's under the control of demons for just posting something like this. Now, as I read something like that, I couldn't believe the vitriol that came from it. And I thought to myself, why is it? And one of the most common comments underneath that post is, pick a side, Keller, pick a side, Keller, pick a side, Keller. And it led me back to understanding what we were talking about these past couple weeks. That it feels like people are forcing someone like this to pick a side so they can decide whether or not you're on our side or you're a part of the other side. Or you're, are you my side or are you a, an opponent? Can I trust you, or should I throw you out as somebody who is an enemy? Not concerned about whether or not Keller is preaching Jesus and the gospel, but concerned about which political side he's taking. Do you ever read the gospels and think to yourself, when Jesus says something, we see this happen throughout the gospels, where Jesus says something and the religious leaders just go nuts. They get angry, they start calling Jesus a blasphemer, they start saying all these things about him. I think when we get to the, the, towards the end of the Gospels and Jesus is being tried before Pilate and you see the crowds crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Sometimes when I read those Gospel accounts, I think to myself, wow, it, can't, it couldn't have really been this bad, could it? I mean, maybe the Gospel writers were exaggerating a little bit for effect. And then I read something like this and I think to myself, wow, sin is really that bad. And when it gets a hold of us, it looks really, really ugly. And look, Tim Keller's not Jesus, but this is something that 
I think Jesus would say to us right now. As Christians, we shouldn't be dehumanizing and demonizing people based on politics. I don't think it's that big a thing. But look, reading something like this, I think, only drives home the point that as much as we say that we get what the kingdom of God is all about as Christians, that we need to understand a little bit more and we need a reminder of what it means to put King Jesus first. What it, what it means for us to live out the kingdom in a real way. And so because of those reasons, I believe this is a necessary series. I also believe that what we're going to be looking at today from Matthew chapter 5 as we open up into verse 13 is going to be something that is hugely necessary and relevant for us. And we're going to look at something that's bigger than ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at what happens when we engage in the mission of Jesus' kingdom, to be the mission of Jesus' people that he's called us into the world to be. And when it comes to things like mission, you know, we as human beings tend to live out the mission of who we are. In other words, what we value and what we consider to be worth it are the things that we just naturally begin to live out in our lives. And so as we open up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, I think one thing we need to be reminded of is that what Jesus has just said in the first part of the sermon, in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verses, basically verse 2, and going through verse 12, the Beatitudes that we looked at last week, those have set up now what he's going to talk about as he gets into the calling of what it looks like to be on mission. So he prioritizes the kingdom, and he says, this is how we're supposed to look, right? The Beatitudes, were supposed to be poor in spirit and meek and merciful. We're supposed to be people who, who are pure in spirit. We're supposed to be people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And in all of these ways, now we are people who are ready to engage the mission of God, or at least this is what it looks like as we engage the mission of God. And so Jesus sets this up, and, he begin, and then we begin in verse 13 as we continue into this sermon. And it says this in verse 13 from Jesus. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and to be trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it, give light, and it gives light to all the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now let's stop there for a minute. Of course, Jesus introduces two metaphors here that are probably very familiar to us if we know this sermon. Salt of the earth and being the light of the world. And he says that those of you who are my disciples, if you're going to follow me, which includes not only those who were sitting there 2,000 years ago, but of course anybody today who calls themselves a follower of Jesus, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now these are familiar metaphors to us. In fact, uh, people even use these in kind of secular contexts. You've heard people say before, these people are great people. They're the salt of the earth kind of people, which means that they're trustworthy, they're good people, they're the good kind of good folks that you can really trust. Well, salt of the earth and light of the world were specific to Jesus. When Jesus used this in the Sermon on the Mount, they were specific directives about who we are supposed to be as followers of Jesus. And as we dive into these metaphors a little bit more, we see what Jesus is getting at. And look, when we think about salt today, salt doesn't really speak to us all that much because for the most part, salt is something we use sparingly. We use it sometimes to season our food, and depending on your diet, you may or may not like to have a lot of salt. You may actually have to avoid salt in your diet, and so it's not necessarily seen as beneficial as it was during Jesus' time. But when Jesus talks about salt, salt was a hugely important uh, resource in the ancient world. It, 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 it covered all kinds of different purposes, and it was actually everywhere. People used it everywhere. In fact, at, some, at one point, it was so valuable that in the ancient world, it was actually used as currency. And so when Jesus is talking about salt, one of the ways that salt was used is it was used as a preservative. And so in a, in a, in a of course, time in history when people didn't have refrigerators, salt was used to put into the meat so that, especially if you caught fish and you caught more fish than you could eat that night, you could put salt on your meat so that it would allow it to be preserved for a longer period of time so that it wouldn't spoil. Salt was also used as a main seasoning ingredient, kind of like we do today, but salt was also used in farming. It was used to aid in fertilizing because it was thought that it helped the crops grow a little bit better. The point of this all, though, is that salt was used everywhere, and I think this is the point that Jesus is getting at, is that as we, this metaphor stretches a little further than even just those individual uses. It had to do with the overall necessity and value of salt. When Jesus talked about the salt of the earth, the people who were sitting there thought to themselves, yeah, salt is necessary for almost everything we do in life. And the point, and it was seen as a good thing, it was seen as something that was necessary for sustaining welfare and for, for, for impacting the, 
the world for good. And so when Jesus talks about his disciples as a salt of the earth, what he's saying literally is that you are supposed to be people who are everywhere in this world preserving what is good, displaying what is good, and being different and distinct in a way that benefits life and flourishing and growth everywhere. And in addition, we can see a little bit more about the meaning of the salt metaphor as Jesus talks about what were to happen if salt were to lose its flavor, which implies its usefulness. Jesus says, look, really, what makes salt so useful is that it's distinct. When you put it on meat, you put it on meat for a reason. It tastes different than the meat, and it gives that meat some kind of a flavor, a distinctiveness. And Jesus says, in the same way, as followers of Jesus, we are to bring that distinctiveness, that gospel distinctiveness, that kingdom distinctiveness that is different from, from the world in such a way that it actually draws the world to that difference and to that distinctiveness. So, Jesus' followers are supposed to be different and distinct, right? Something that probably, if you've been a part of church, you've heard all your life. But in what way are we actually supposed to be different and distinct? What does that look like? How are we supposed to be different? Is it like if the world has a certain kind of music that they like, then we have a different kind of music, and we just make that music Christian? Is it like if the world, you know, likes certain kinds of movies, then we just make kind of our own movies, and those are different? Is it, you know, if the world wears a certain kind of clothes and that kind of thing, then we kind of make our own stuff that becomes Christian, and that way it's different? I was, uh, and this was popular several years ago. I think it still is, but not as much. Several years ago, when people would take, you know, logos of clothing companies in, in the world and kind of remake them, into like a cross or put a Bible verse on top of them and kind of have some catchy saying with them. We, uh, I remember being at a Christian music festival several years ago, and there was this huge room that was filled with all these, you know, kind of merchandise booths. And you would walk through, and table after table, booth after booth, was full of all these different kind of Christianly imagined products, if you will. And so you had Christian t-shirts that used like the Levi's logo in some way that looked like a cross, and then you had like MLB logo where a guy, instead of having a bat in his hand, had a cross in his hand, and he was called Major League Believer instead of Major League Baseball. You know, those kinds of things, right? You guys have all seen this. And coffee mugs that had Bible verses all over them. But one of the craziest thing was, as we were walking through this, I remember seeing a table and I'm sorry if you know these people or you happen to be these people. I'm going exp- to apologize in advance. I'm not trying to be mean. I just thought it was hilarious. We walk up to this table, and these people had Christian vitamin supplements, okay? So they had vitamin supplements that were exactly the same as the vitamin supplements that you could buy at, like, GNC or Walgreens or whatever, except they had, like, Christian branding on the outside, and they cost $10 more than what you would pay at Walgreens, Right? And, but, this is the kicker, on the outside of the label it said, of course, it had, of course, um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And apparently these vitamin supplements as well. <laughs> I couldn't get out of my, it struck me that, wow, we have gone to this place where it's like we feel like everything that we do has to be Christian branded. Now, is that what it means to be different? I think we laugh at this because we realize this is a veiled, kind of thin way of being different, because actually being different in the way that Jesus is talking about here is much more difficult. And if we look at the context of what Jesus has just said at the beginning of the sermon, we see that all of these lists of the Beatitudes, we talked about this last week, how overwhelming this can be. Like, we want to be poor in spirit. We want to be humble. Those things are good. We want to be merciful. We want to be people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But to do all of those things all the time, is really, really difficult to do. But this is where Jesus comes from, the end of this. Now, we're taking about three months to go through this sermon. What we have to remember is that when Jesus preached this sermon, it all happened at once. And so as people are trying to understand, okay, what does it mean to be salt and light in the world? Jesus has just talked about this is what it looks like. All of these beatitudes, which if you line those values up with the world values, creates a very clear distinction on what it means to be different. And so if we're asking what it means to be different, Jesus has just provided us with a list of what it looks like, how the kingdom is different in the Beatitudes. But when you put these two, which brings us to the second metaphor, when you put these two together, that goes with salt here. We're also called by Jesus to be the light of the world. Now, naturally speaking, we know that the purpose of light is to dispel or to remove darkness. Wherever light is, darkness cannot be. We know that if you have a small light, even the smallest light can light up a dark room. But at the same time, if that light is dimmed, it loses its effectiveness. At the same time, if that light is covered, it's, it completely loses its purpose. Which is why Jesus says it is ridiculous for us to be the light of the world and yet to throw a cover or a blanket on top of that thing 
because it doesn't accomplish what it's supposed to be. But what Jesus is pointing out here is that salt and light, both distinctive, both things that cause distinction and difference in the world and that are hugely, that are hugely needed in the world, this is who we are supposed to be. Now, when you put these two metaphors together, you get a picture that starts to emerge. Salt and light, especially in the ancient world, were essential for life to function. And so when Jesus applies these metaphors to us as believers, to his disciples as believers, he is expecting that something, some impact is actually going to be made in the calling out of his disciples to live by the kingdom. And that in living out these beatitudes, the way of the kingdom is going to be impactful but also attractive to the world around us. Now the question again is, how do we do that? It's one thing to say we need to live as people who are embracing the Beatitudes and hope that that characterizes our life, but what does that actually look like? Last week we talked about it starts with treasuring the kingdom. We didn't go a lot further than that because actually when we get to this place right here in verse 17 we're about to read, Jesus draws this out a little bit more for us. So we wanted to wait till this week to talk about it, but it says here as we continue in verse 17, these key verses, which are really key to Jesus' sermon, key to understanding what it means to live on mission, key to understanding what it means to live as people of the kingdom, to embody the Beatitudes, happens right here in verses 17 through 20. And it says this, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of, these, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when we see that phrase here, the law and the prophets, what Jesus is referring to is essentially what we know as the Old Testament today. It was really the scriptures at the time because the New Testament wasn't written when Jesus was preaching this sermon yet. And so he's talking about, when he talks about the law and the prophets, it's another way of talking about the scriptures, God's word. And Jesus makes a statement where he says, I have come not to abolish what's in the Old Testament, not to abolish the Hebrew Scriptures, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill everything that the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament was pointing to. And this is the key to understanding what it looks like to live as kingdom people because this is the centrality of the gospel. Remember, Jesus, uh, another place where Jesus uses this phrase, law and the prophets, is when he answers the question of what is the first and greatest commandment. And he says, he answers it this way, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, that means all of scripture, hangs on these two things. And so we know that Jesus' ministry was about loving God and loving people, but what exactly does that look like practically? Well, this is the centrality of the gospel. Jesus says, I came to fulfill all of the Old Testament, all the law and the prophets. As we look back and we see, what exactly is Jesus pointing to? He's pointing back to the fact that the law for Israel was given to them so that they would love God and love their neighbor, love the world in a way that represented the character of God. Now, we know throughout the Old Testament that Israel failed miserably at this time and time again. And God sends prophet after prophet to remind them, look, this is what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be loving God, loving your neighbor, loving the world. You're supposed to be God's people in the world. And they continue not to love God and not to love their neighbor. They break the covenant over and over again. So when Jesus arrives and he loves God and loves people with what he's doing in his ministry, this is one aspect, this is one way in which he fulfills the law and the prophets. He stands in Israel's place as the faithful Israel that fulfills the human side of the covenant with God. And then not only does he do that, but then he goes to the cross providing a sacrifice that fulfills the sacrificial system where God had covered over sin graciously, pointing ultimately to Jesus as the Lamb of God who went to the cross, paid the penalty for our sin, was the atonement on our behalf, and then he rose again so that we might have new life. Now, here's the thing. In all of this, there are three ways that Jesus does this. He stands in our place, fulfilling the righteousness of God in our place. Then he goes to the cross, making us people who are justified before God. And then he rises again so that we might have new life and live in this way. And here's the key to all of this. In verse 20, as Jesus gets down to it, he says, 
This is how, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, this was a shocking statement for the people who were sitting there listening. Because the scribes were the guys who spent their entire lives, every waking moment, learning the scriptures inside and out. They were the ones who interpreted the scriptures, who got to the place of kind of understanding, okay, this is exactly what God's word says. And then the Pharisees were the guys who taught people, this is how you apply what God's word has to say. They lived it, they taught it, they breathed it. These two sets of people were looked at by Israel as the authorities on what it means to be right with God and what it means to follow God's word faithfully. And so when Jesus looks at the crowds and says, your righteousness has to surpass these guys, the crowds must have been thinking to themselves, well, if they can't get into the kingdom of heaven and their righteousness does not allow them into the kingdom of heaven, what hope is there for any of the rest of us? And that's exactly where Jesus is driving them to because in the end, he points back to himself and says, look, I am the one who have fulfilled the law on your behalf. I have fulfilled it all in your place and the righteousness that you need is the righteousness that I give. And so through the gospel, we are given the righteousness, the forgiveness, and then the ability to live this way. As a, so as Jesus points to himself as the only one who can be fully righteous, the actual righteousness that's needed the kingdom of heaven, he then, he then points to the fact that not only are we forgiven and justified, but we are enabled to actually live this way that he allows for us by the rebirth and new birth of the Holy Spirit. Now, take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because as we do, I think when we talk about what it means to be on mission, when we talk about what it means to live this out in the world around us, we talk about what it leads to live the character of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus. There's a lot of different ways we can explain this. But I think one of the best and clearest ways comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. It's what the Bible calls the ministry of reconciliation, or at least what Paul calls it here in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So do you see that there? One thing we covered last week is, and we reminded ourselves of last week, is that when we see the word Christ in Scripture, it's not Jesus' last name. It's actually a title for who Jesus is. This is Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, the King. And so when you see Christ show up four times in this passage, particularly in verse uh, 20, it's clear, we are ambassadors for King Jesus. We are ambassadors for his kingdom sent out from a kingdom to a foreign land to be representatives of who our king is and what his kingdom is all about. And Paul says, look, we ha- and, and what we're sent out with is this message and this ministry of reconciliation. So that we are people who have been reconciled by God. His initiative to reconcile us, even though we were separated from, by sin and rebellion and disobedience, God reconciles us. He reconciles us through Jesus, brings us to a place of reconciliation, and then sends us out as kingdom representatives so that he can make his appeal to the world to be reconciled to God. It's a very clear, very, uh, one of the reasons I like this is it's just a very clear connection between the gospel and what God has done for us and then what it is that we do on mission and what this looks like. And this is the salt and the light that Jesus is talking about. It's the, look, as I look at this, it's the greatest calling that any of us can ever imagine. I mean, think about this for a minute. The greatest calling that you can be given in life, I think in this world, is to represent Jesus in such a way that you are appealing to the beauty of the kingdom that is eternal. And that as people respond, their lives and their destinies and their eternities are changed. What could be better than that? And this is the ambassador calling of the ministry of reconciliation as a king. And the simple truth of it all is that all of us are ambassadors of something. Whatever kingdom we see that we're living in or feel like we're living in, we are ambassadors of that thing. And so Jesus latches onto this, Paul latches onto this, and helps us remember that our first and primary allegiance is to King Jesus, to be ambassadors for him. And this is what it looks like. Ed Stetzer says this, 
Practically speaking, we need to study our culture like ambassadors so we can effectively show and share the gospel. And we see this a lot going on, outrage, anger, emotion. But behind every expression of outrage in our age is a real need. There's brokenness and destruction that our message of reconciliation through Jesus is meant to address. As people who have found their identity in Jesus, we need to fully engage with and participate in the lives of those who are still seeking their identity. This is how we bring God's kingdom to a broken world. Like this is what Jesus does in our lives. And it's not meant to just stop at us as it transforms us, but it's meant to be a showcase and an invitation to the world. To say, look, you're hurting. You're dealing with all of these issues. Let me show you a way in which Jesus has provided an identity, a calling, a future, a life, and an eternity for you. And as Christians, I still, you know, at times I have trouble just getting my mind around what this means, but it is so profound to be able to say this because it's true. As Christians, as born-again Christians, we are actually little temples of the personhood and the presence of God walking around on the earth. We are literally the place where heaven and earth meets. Wherever you are as a Christian, if you are born again, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, which means the presence of God indwells you wherever you go. Literally the place where heaven and earth meet. And the ministry of reconciliation right now is needed as much as it has ever been. If you look at what is happening in our world, people are hurting everywhere. They're hurting in different ways. They're hurting in ways maybe that, ways that we might not all understand. And instead of trying to understand why they're hurting, unfortunately, I see a lot of us, a lot of Christians, tell them that they shouldn't be hurting or they, they, don't, they don't have a reason to be hurting. I see many Christians lacking the compassion that we need to be people who look like Jesus. And at some point, we have to challenge ourselves with, does this really look like Jesus? Spiritually speaking, people are dying spiritually like they always have, but this year has made it more apparent We've seen symptoms of what has gone on as we've moved through this very difficult year. You know, I remember thinking at the, you know, in March and kind of the end of March and when we got into April, once we knew that we'd be locking down for a while and going into quarantine, I remember thinking to myself, well, it's going to be great because at least, you know, dads who've been working a lot and have to travel a lot are going to be able to be at home with their kids a little bit more. They're going to be able to work from home. Maybe there'll be some bonding that goes on within families as kids and parents spend more time together, as husbands and wives spend more time together. Instead, what we began to see, unfortunately, is that it led to an epidemic of domestic violence, of divorce, of pornography, of depression, and of suicide. And I think what this helped us see is that no matter what the setting looks like, no matter how we structure things around us, sin and brokenness always finds its way in. Because sin and brokenness is not just out there, but it's right here in my heart and in yours. And when it comes to the ministry of reconciliation, where the world is outside and we are trying to reach them with this idea of what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom, I think we need to adopt much more of a posture of being like a doctor than we do a posture of being like a judge. I think it's important for us to understand because so many of us miss out on this opportunity. I think, it, I think it's just default, part of our sin nature, part of our self-righteousness to want to be judges. But we've got to fight through that temptation to want the posture of a judge and to be a posture of a doctor instead. And what I mean by that is this, is that we can look at people who are hurting and we can look at the symptoms in their lives and although they might not understand why it is that they're hurting, we know that we have the diagnosis for that in God's word and we have the solution for that in the healer that they need to know. And Jesus uses the doctor image himself in the gospels and I think when you think about this, it really makes a lot of sense. I mean, what happens when you go and pay a doctor, you go to a doctor's office and pay the doctor a visit, right? The first thing they're gonna do with you, other than like have you stand on the scale and do all that stuff, is they're going to bring you into a room and the doctor's going to sit down and he's going to ask you, what's wrong? Where do you hurt? What symptoms are you seeing? And as you explain to him, you know, I have a fever, I have a stomach ache, uh, you know, my neck hurts, my knee's been hurting, you know, how long has it been hurting and how is this going? The doctor's asking questions. He's trying to get to the source of where your pain is so that he can diagnose the right prescription, he could diagnose the right plan for cure. And look, spiritually speaking, as Christians, I believe we're called to do much the same thing. To sit with people and actually listen. Why is it that you're hurting? Why is it that you're struggling so much? What are the symptoms that you see? 
And it's not our calling to heal them, but it's our calling to point them to the one who can heal them and the only one who can heal them. And I think it's tragic that we've either been unwilling or we found ourselves unfit to be able to sit down with people who are hurting in that room and talk with them about what is really hurting in their lives and to provide them with a real solution that will heal them. I saw this picture this past week. I think it's gone viral, maybe, um, but it is a, a picture of a man who's on a bridge there. I think this is outside of London, somewhere in, in England, at least. And this man had gotten onto that side of the railing on the bridge with the intent of committing suicide. And a, a few people, as they were walking by, immediately saw what was going on. And you can see the man that's in the picture. He's got his arms around this man's neck, and he's physically preventing him from jumping off of this bridge. Uh, you can see that other, other bystanders who have come by are a part of the, maybe this man's party have come and they've tied ropes around the man so that he can't jump. And then there's even a person on uh, his or her knees reaching through the railing to grab the feet of this young man so that he won't jump off the bridge. And when you think about how all this came together, it's a really moving thing because what had to happen in that moment was a guy who saw somebody who was hurting and who needed help and he just jumped to a place where he did whatever he could to save them. The urgency and the immediacy is here is what I want us to see. I feel like sometimes, figuratively speaking, we see people on a bridge and, and we think to ourselves, well, that's tragic, but I've got other things I've got to do. Or that's tragic, and I wonder what actually got him there, and then by the time we try to figure it out, he's already jumped. Or that's tragic, but who built that rail so low so that somebody could actually get over that rail and commit suicide? And look, I think the way that we're called in the kingdom is when we see hurt, when we see pain, we just go and meet it without hesitation. We go with the winsome love and the grace and mercy of Jesus to save people, not asking questions about how they got themselves in that predicament, but looking to heal what is a deeper need which they're crying out for. A Lifeway poll that was done a couple years ago uh, Lifeway is, by the way, a Christian publication, and they interviewed or they polled a bunch of people who are non-churchgoers, some who are former churchgoers but don't go to church anymore, some who just never really went to church. And they found that 79% of non-churchgoers, that's about 8 out of 10, obviously, agreed with this statement. Christianity today is more about organized religion than it is about loving God and loving people. Now, Perception's perception. Is that reality? I don't know. At least for those people, perception is reality. But I'll tell you this, if eight out of ten people who don't go to church view the church as just, and Christianity as just an organized religion rather than people who actually love God and love people, when they are hurting, they are not going to come to the church to look for love and connection with God. Now that doesn't mean all hope is lost, but it means we have to change our engagement. We don't wait for people to come. We have to be the church and be the kingdom out in the world. We have to be doctors who make house calls into every place that we are allowed to be in. And with the time I have left, I just want to cover a few things. There are four things, really, that I think I want us to take from this. I think um, these are four movements of perspective, four movements of heart that I think is going to be the things that carry us and compel us as we're out in the world to be witnesses of the kingdom. These come from um, a recent book by Ed Stetzer called Christians in the Age of Outrage. Ed Stetzer is an author, a former pastor. He's done a ton of things uh, in ministry if you're not aware of who he is. But I think more than anything, these come right from the Bible. In fact, you're going to see these four things are things that um, relate almost directly with the Beatitudes that we saw at the beginning of Matthew 5. The first one is this, that we as Christians need to be more empathetic. We have to realize that this world is broken and just as sin has broken us, and we are people who once needed Jesus and who still need Jesus, that the world needs Jesus, not rejection. And Stetzer points out, really, that the enemy to empathy is disgust, which I thought was really profound because we live in a world where we are encouraged to be disgusted with things and disgusted with people. We're encouraged to be disgusted by that person's perspective, by how they're behaving, by what they're doing over and over and over again. And as long as we're disgusted with somebody, it's like a repellent. We can't actually love somebody whom we are disgusted with. Ed Stetzer says this, Disgust will pervade our interactions, inform our quick dismissal of others, and even justify the harsh language we use to describe others. This is practically destructive to mission 
and highlights Christians at their worst. It transforms what should be gospel-centered love for sinners as potential vessels for God's mercy, which we are called to be, gospel-centered people who love sinners as vessels of God's mercy because we have experienced God's mercy. It turns us into instead people who do not have unconditional love but have conditional love predicated upon cultural and political fears. Disgust is the enemy of empathy, and it will not allow us to love in the way that Jesus has called us to radically love. It will not allow us to fulfill the mission that God has called us to. Secondly, we must be more humble. Jesus talks about this as being poor in spirit in the Beatitudes. We have to take the posture of humility towards a culture that we've been called to reach rather than a posture of hostility, a posture of judgment, or a posture of tribalism. We have to work hard to be people who are poor in spirit and humble before the world. Ed Stetzer says this, winsome love doesn't speak to whether we disagree. In other words, like we talked about last week, we can disagree and we will disagree, but it's a question of how do you disagree? How do you love people that you still disagree with? Rather, it shapes the way in which we disagree. Too often our engagement is characterized by an all-or-nothing debate that we are determined to win. And this is where it gets practical. It's not about winning or losing. It's about sharing Jesus and inviting others to follow him. You know, we see this desire to win at all costs right now all over the place. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, passed a couple weeks ago, which has left an opening on the Supreme Court. President Trump has announced his nomination for, to fill that seat. And you're already seeing how this poor woman that's going through this process is not somebody who's being looked at in terms of her qualifications, her education, but is somebody who's being attacked personally and at all costs. People are working to destroy her reputation and demonize her and dehumanize her in all of these ways for the sake of an end. And this happens on both sides all the time, that the ends justify the means. It doesn't matter how we get there. It doesn't matter who we destroy in the process as long as we get to the, the desired end that we feel is the best way. We must be more humble. Number three, we must see people as image bearers. We have to see all people as people who have intrinsic value in them, the intrinsic value that God, their creator, put in them when he created them. We live in a world of lost, broken, and hurting image bearers, says Ed Stetzer. In our current age of outrage, interactions are usually informed by pre-existing political, cultural, and religious identities. As a result, we must be intentional about transcending these divisions and treating others with the inherent dignity they deserve. John Calvin said this, In order to love our neighbor, our love of neighbor is not dependent upon the matter of men, but it looks to God. In other words, to truly love our neighbor, we don't look at a person to see whether there are things that is inherently lovable about them in terms of who they are, whether we agree with them, whether we like them, whether they look like they're lovable, whether they act like they're lovable. We look to the image of God that is in each person, and we love that person because the image of God is in every person who has ever been created. And number four, we must be sacrificial. We have to be willing to give up certain things that are not as important in order to introduce people to Jesus, and we have to be willing, willing to fight for what matters. Ed Stetzer says, winsome love is sacrificial in its intents and actions. It stands up to injustice, unrighteousness, and oppression, regardless of the personal or professional cost to us. Silence is often the tempting alternative to engagement in this age, when the slightest misstep can unleash a disproportionate quality and quantity of outrage. You know, one of the things that I'm grieving about this whole dialogue and these narratives that are going on is that we are losing the ability to actually speak about things that the Bible speaks against. And what, I'm, what I mean by that is that today, if you, use the, if you talk about injustice or oppression in the world, which the Bible talks a ton about, you're automatically labeled as one side or the other. You're a Marxist or worse. And so what's happened is we've been forced into a corner where we can't address things like injustice and oppression, which are serious issues in our culture, without slipping down the slide of you being characterized as something that is deplorable, as something that looks like something else. In some cases, it's actually been a fireable offense for pastors to speak about injustice and oppression in our country right now. 
But maybe we should look at the scriptures and see how many times the Old Testament prophets call out Israel for being unjust and for aiding in oppression. C.S. Lewis says this in the screw tape letters, which if you're not familiar with the screw tape letters, I want to close with this just to encourage us and to challenge us. Screw tape letters was a book that was written by um, C.S. Lewis, and uh, it's a great book. If you haven't read it before, it's a classic. I would suggest you read it sometime. But it's about how an uh, older demon is writing to a younger demon about how to tempt this new Christian that he's been assigned to. So you've got Screwtape, who is Uncle, Uncle Screwtape, the older demon, more experienced, who's writing to his nephew, Wormwood, about how to destroy this young man's life who has become a Christian that Wormwood has been assigned to. So read it from this, so we'll read it from this perspective. And to give you a little bit of background as well, when C.S. Lewis wrote this book, he was, he's, he's British, and at the time, uh, uh, Great Britain was considering, the UK was considering whether or not they would enter the war against Hitler. And there were both sides, it was a very divisive time in, in, in the history of the United Kingdom, British history, and, and there were two sides, the pacifist, who said that we should avoid war with Hitler and avoid getting into ourselves into a war, and what were known as the patriots, who were the ones who wanted to confront Hitler and who wanted to engage in that war to stop him from spreading through Europe. But C.S. Lewis picks up on this, and so as you see patriotism and pacifism, it's a different setting, but the same principles. We could substitute any kind of ism we want in this that's a politicalism, progressivism, conservatism. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part, and then quietly and gradually nurse him on the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man, and it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing, provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity, he is ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. This calls us to a place where we have to consider what is primary and where is our primary allegiance in all of this. That if we were really to become the salt and light of the kingdom that Jesus has called us to, which I believe, again, is the greatest calling we could ever be called to, that our priority has to rest with the kingdom wholeheartedly. And that yeah, we engage in politics, but our politics are interpreted by the kingdom and our fellowship in Jesus rather than our politics interpreting how we follow Jesus. Let's pray that the Lord does this in us. I want to invite the band to join us. We close in prayer this morning. Father, here we come to you, third week in a row, praying a prayer of allegiance. And as we look at what this looks like from the standpoint of mission, Lord, I pray that you would stir in us a hunger and a thirst for your righteousness in this world. I pray that above all, the kingdom imagination that you have spelled out already through this Sermon on the Mount and that you're going to continue to display for us would grab a hold of our hearts and our minds. That we'd be able to identify the things in our lives and in our hearts that are getting in the way that even, if we're honest in some ways, have become idols that have stolen our affections from you. Lord Jesus, I know that not only are there people hurting outside of these doors and outside of these buildings, but there are people hurting in this room. There are people hurting online who are watching this because they're angry, they're confused, they're not sure where to go next. They've experienced the worst of what this year can give, and they find themselves in a lost place. I pray, Father, that as much as we've been called to be the doctors who help assess the system, the symptoms of what is going on, Lord, that your spirit would do that in us. That we'd be able to see why it is that we're hurting, why it is that we're struggling, why it is that we're so angry, why it is that we feel so lost right now. That you would call us back to yourself as the one who is the great healer and the lover of our souls. As the one who has created us, the one who is personal enough to see everything that we go through, to see every tear we cry, to know every hair that is on our head. 
and to be the one who is like a father to us, who comforts us in our time of need so that we can be people who bring comfort and mercy and grace to the world. We don't pretend to do this on our own, Lord. If it was our own calling and out of our own effort, we would fail and we do fail. But we know, Lord Jesus, that not only have you promised, not only have you, have you redeemed us and saved us, but Lord, you have promised to produce your character in us by your spirit. And so we ask for your power, your presence, spirit, to do this in us. May you transform us into a way that is appealing and attractive to the world. And may we fight hard on our end to consider this a priority in our lives. To maybe release the things that we've had a tight grip on so that we can receive more of the kingdom. Lord, would you do this in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thank you again. Great to see all you guys here this morning. I want to remind you that we have prayer cards in the back as you leave this morning. Uh, on that table back there, we have prayer cards. If you would fill one of those out, if you have a prayer need, we have staff members, we have staff team and elders and a bunch of people who are praying through those every week. And so if you take the time to write it down, we are certainly going to take the time to pray over it over the next week or so. Um, we believe in the God who answers prayers. And so we want to encourage you to take one of those and fill it out. If there's anything that's going on in your life that you need prayer for, maybe a family member that you're praying for, whatever it may be. Fill that out and then drop it in the offering stands as you leave this morning, those black offering stands, and we'll make sure we get it to the right place. Um, I think the song we just sung is beautifully put. You know, it's, it's may the Lord, may his face shine upon you, may he bless you, may he give you rest, may he give you peace. And so as you leave this place, may the grace of the Lord Jesus rest upon you. We love you guys. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.